Welcome to the Vulture Festival podcast, featuring the interviews and panel discussions from the 2016 Vulture Festival. The Vulture Festival podcast is brought to you by Casper, the award-winning sleep startup that created one perfect mattress and a simpler shopping experience to go with it. The Casper sleep surface is engineered for supportive comfort and offers just the right sink and bounce. Order online and try it for 100 nights risk-free. For $50 towards any size Casper mattress, visit casper.com slash vulture50. This is Inside the Leftovers, recorded live at Vulture Festival on Sunday, May 22nd, and featuring Vulture writer Jen Chaney and The Leftovers co-creators and executive producers Tom Perota and Damon Lindelof, executive producer and director Mimi Leader, and star Justin Thoreau. Good afternoon. My name's Jen Chaney, and I've been a contributor to Vulture for a while, but I'm going to be the new TV columnist in a couple weeks. And I'm going to be... Oh, thanks. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to be moderating this conversation about The Leftovers, which I'm very honored and happy and excited to do. I have a feeling many of you know everyone who's seated next to me, but I will go ahead and introduce uh, the co-creator of the series, executive producer Damon Lindelof. Also co-creator of the series and executive producer and the author of the very wonderful novel on which this series is based, Tom Parada. Another executive producer and a director of many of the episodes, including uh, this season's first episode and the finale, Mimi Leader. The actor who plays Kevin Garvey and uh, Mr. Rock and Roll, Justin Thoreau. And you know her, you love her, Patty Levin and Dowd, a very special edition today. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time talking about season two. Um, We're going to look at a few clips and maybe talk a little bit about season three, depending on what you guys can say. Uh, And then hopefully we'll have some time to open it up to the audience for some Q&A as well. but I wanted to start actually with a question for Damon and Tom about sort of how you, the story process for season two, because obviously you were breaking away from the source material for the first time. Can you talk about how you started to lay the groundwork for what the narrative was going to be without having that, you know, the novel as a foundation? Do you want to start? <laughs> sure. Um, the, the first thing I'll say is uh, that the idea of miracle uh, had popped up in a vague way in season one, um, we were sort of thinking about the wider world and what it looked like. And we said, what if there was a town uh, where nobody departed? What would that seem like? And I think originally it was maybe a stop for Tom and Christine on their tour across country. And and every time we thought about writing it into season one, we realized it was just too big. The idea um, would have just, it would just taken too long to set up. It would have overwhelmed an episode. So it was just in our back pocket. and when it got resurrected uh, as a way to kind of organize the whole season, I remember that being really exciting. Yeah, I, I think um, as season one was was coming to a close um, and and uh, we ended the show, the first season it, almost verbatim, it, verb, literally verbatim, um, and literally is misused, but in this case, used correctly. But, uh, you know, Tom's Tom's uh, novel actually uh, ends ends with the words, look what I found, and that's that's what season one ended with. And I think that there was a, a, a sense of, if we can't uh, do any better than this, then why continue? And so the first conversation that we had, just the two of us, was should we? Um, and... Uh, the, this, the show wasn't a ratings, ratings uh, juggernaut by any stretch of the imagination, so HBO was cool with us um, kind of coming to them and saying, here's an idea that we're excited about. But I think that this idea percolated back up, and the first thing that, that, uh, that occurred to me was, it feels like these characters are on a trajectory out of Mapleton. You know, Nora has just written this beautifully eloquent note again from Tom's novel uh, and beautifully performed by Carrie Coon. And uh, and Kevin is, you know, just saved his uh, daughter from a burning uh, building. And Laurie Garvey has left the guilty remnant. Is like, why would these people stay here? Um, Patty's dead. Um, you know, uh, is she? right? Yeah, <laughs> technically. And so it's like. 
is it possible that they would leave? You know, would they would they try to start over somewhere? And can you do that on television? We're trying trying to think of television shows that basically completely and totally change their location between the first and second season. And there are certainly shows like The Wire that we love that would change the location inside Baltimore uh, every year, the location in, in focus. And then Friday Night Lights, which is a show that we were obsessed with, changed to East Dillon um, uh, later in its run. But can we do this? And then we were like, what about that town where nobody departed from? What if we actually started in that town, met an entirely new family, and then the Garveys came crashing into their show? It was like, oh, this is like almost a new pilot in many ways. We got really excited about that idea and the Murphys and, and telling that story. And then we went to, uh, to HBO and uh, they got excited about it too. And then we told Mimi that there was a a cavewoman in it, and she got excited. And, uh, the rest is history. Speaking of the cavewoman, uh, our, our first clip actually is uh, a, a bit of the opening sequence from the very first episode of the season, which was, forgive me, a departure in many ways from what you had done before. Um, let's take a look at that clip from Axis Monday. So I should have warned you there would be graphic imagery during this, um, during this panel. <laughs> uh, Mimi, I wanted to start by asking you if you could talk a little bit about shooting that sequence because we were talking backstage and you said there was months of preparation involved um, in terms of figuring out how to do that. Yeah, there were months of discussion. You know, what does a cavewoman look like? You know, from 20,000 years ago, what, do, what does she wear? At one point, Damon... Uh, we we saw the first costume and it was way too much. And Damon said, "I think she should be naked." And the actor said, "That sounds more lascivious than it was." <laughs> no, it was like no, you know, it was like a very weird clan of the cave bear, yeah, like no, leather. Was I was like, no. And the actress went, "Oh no." Yeah. And um, so we came up with this, you know, this the small covering and the long hair and and you know. You know, that's Sarah Tomko who came in and did a six-minute audition for us. And she, you know, she gave birth in that audition and we fell in love with her. And, um, you know, we shot actually the cave woman sequence in three days, which is quite astounding. Actually, when you, when you look at it again, I, it, it feels like we it, we, we it took a month to shoot it. And um, we just wanted to get it completely accurate and completely right, even the sounds that came out of her. You know, we strove for, um, you know, 
what was she, what was she, she had to survive. She, you know, her her cave people departed, and she was left there. And there were two, and it was it was a very emotional sequence. And um, she was extraordinary, and and I think it, you know, set up the whole season and mirrored, you know, our story mm-hmm. quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Anne and Justin, you're not in that sequence, but I was wondering when you got the <laughs> when you got the I tried the, to be um, <laughs> when you got the script. Were you like, what? I mean, what was your response? That's every that's every script. But, <laughs> no, I, I I thought it was a. I mean, I read it and just thought it was such a beautiful. I mean, obviously, you want to keep reading, and then once you get into the meat of the script, but um, I just thought what a ballsy swinging for the fences you know, opening to a second season because half people are going to think they're on the wrong channel. Um, <laughs> um, I just thought it was very courageous, you know, but I mean, as, as much of what they do. Mm-hmm. And do you want to add anything? Well, I thought it was the most stunning thing I ever saw. I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I kept saying, I, I thought it was a miracle what I was watching, how it ever came to be. Um, you'd think I'd have some clue having been on a set or two, but I, I thought it was miraculous and stunning. And as as Justin said, you know, you, <laughs> you never know what's coming down. But Damon's nice to us, so is Tom. They'll say, you know, when you're saying, wait a second here, you're reading the script, I don't see the Garvey family. Where where are they? And at some point when you're about to give up hope that they've departed the entire show, don't worry, our family is coming. I don't know how you exactly say it, but, you know, it's, it's terrific. I wish you all could read it before you see it. Be something to behold. Now, it's my understanding that, that you guys, as the actors, you, you're going episode by episode. You don't necessarily know your character's whole arc for the season. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, um, we kind of get kind of, if there's anything we absolutely need to know, that's, you know that, has to be, that has to be played in one of the previous episodes, and I'll ask for that or kind of the rough trajectory of where it might be going. Mm-hmm. But it's much more enjoyable because it's really the only time, or at least for me, that you get to sort of you know, have a first watch you know um of it's it's much the scripts are so good i hope they publish them someday as in 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 a bound form because they read so beautifully and fast um uh so it's much more fun i think just to sort of get the script and see where we're going right before we start shooting it Mm -hmm. yeah and for your character uh, especially this season where you know he was addled and not understanding what was going on a lot of the time it kind of probably made sense to not yeah know what's going on mirrors the way we shoot our show i mean and life in general you know like (laughs) better not to know what's going to happen tomorrow sometimes and in your case was it a relief that you got to talk more this season it was terrifying actually because not talking at first was daunting i thought well what does one do i you know we rely very heavily uh, on words um and i thought as i've said before you know wearing white 40 pounds overweight my mother in the back of my head saying could you ask him if you could wear black (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> and, 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 you know, and smoking, uh, uh, you know, thinking, okay, what's the attraction here? Uh, but, but the first time on the set not speaking, I thought this is the most powerful expression of desire I've ever, ever experienced. And I got to just love it. Because talk about usurping the power in the room, the poor people who don't talk, like this one, torture chamber, <laughs> to just, ch- you know, look him da- stare him down and just, this is not going anywhere until you get the drift. It was an extraordinary experience. So to answer your question, (laughs) thank God our writers know these characters better, I should say, than I do, certainly for Patty, because then to speak those words, I thought, of course, that's who she is. Mm -hmm. No problem. It was daunting. Everything in the show is daunting in a very good way, but uh, Damon and, and some of you also mentioned the Murphy family being a, a big new addition to the series this season. Um, and it was really interesting, actually, having watched the whole season and then to go back. Uh, I was re-looking at the first episode and see the seeds that you were planting about what was really going on with Evie that should have been obvious, but they were not until you understood the whole story. Um, I'm curious what kinds of conversations you had about you know, being very careful about how much you were going to foreshadow as far as that character and what was really going on there. Uh, Tom actually said something really beautiful uh, as, as we were getting to the end game of the, of the second season um, because a part of the writing process, and, and I don't want to demystify it, um, uh, A, because it's kind of uh, grueling and boring a lot of what we do, but then there's also just this sort of sense of um, 
I, I think in a lot of ways creativity is magic. And when um, and when the, and David Blaine is basically like, I have an identical twin brother. That's how I can teleport. Um, you're like, oh, f- you know, fuck you, David Blaine. Like, <laughs> you know, you. He, uh, so um, so I don't want to completely and totally spoil the process. But what Tom said was. Um, writing is uh, is leaving clues for yourself, um, and so this this idea of um, having an organic process to the show, we had very uh, clear cut ideas about um, about where the girls had gone and what Evie's uh, uh, role in that was and how complicit she was and that she was the mastermind of that. But as we got kind of deeper into the season, other things started becoming more evident to us, and we realized kind of the same thing that you did probably watching the show, which is how obvious it was. But at the same time, you can't, the more you try to control a process on a show like this, I think uh, the less effective it is because you're not letting the show tell you what it wants to be. And also you're, you're constraining the, the, you know, Mimi uh, uh, is not just sitting up here uh, uh, because we uh, think it would be nice to sort of share the love. She is as much of a voice of the show mm-hmm. uh, as, as Tom and I are, or the writers are, and the actors too. So you have to give the show that room for them to express themselves. And that's why I never like to get too far ahead on scripts because you, you start to shoot the show and watch the dailies and watch the cuts, and then the show starts to tell you what it wants to be. And so Jasmine Savoy Brown, who plays Evie, she was telling us, I'm in the guilty remnant. That's why I'm doing this. Um, that might not have been an idea that we necessarily had when we started writing the, uh, the premiere. We always knew that the girls had staged their own departure. Um, but, um, but that was an idea that actually Jackie Hoyt, one of the writers in the writer's room, just said, Evie's in the GR. Mm-hmm. And we all looked at her and we were like, yeah, of course she is. Um, so you have to let the show um, tell you what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, um, that's part of the fun. It's, it's terrifying um, sometimes not having a completely and totally defined plan. But I feel like in the case of The Leftovers, that's um, the more we plan, the more we fail. And the, the more we trust, the more we succeed. Mm-hmm. It allows us to, you know, really follow our instincts and the actors to just go moment by moment and directorially as well. It's, it's, it's a great, um, it's, it's very liberating actually not to know as much as you normally do know. Right. You know, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful process. Having said that, um, as an actor, you know, you have to know what's going on. Not the future, but connecting the dots. You, you just really need to know. And it doesn't need to come from the writers, meaning you don't have to get a confirmation, this is exactly what I intended. That's what I love so much. There's no constraints there, but you better know what you're doing. I remember saying to, writing to Damon, I said, well, I I don't, I don't understand. I mean, does she want, does, does, does Patty want Kevin to get back with, with, with Nora? I mean, is that what's happening? Is she trying to protect the relationship? And Damon wrote back, he said, no, she doesn't believe in relationships. I thought, thank you, clarity immediately, um, and, 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 and consistent. But for instance, also saying, you know, she doesn't know why she's back with him. She didn't plan it. She thought she did the job, the neck, you know, the whole thing over. And suddenly she's attached here. It wasn't my idea. I don't know what I'm doing. But just to get that, you know, just to get that information, she doesn't know. It's just the whole, everything lit up for me. I thought, ah, oh, beautiful. So we do know what we need to know but not more than, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, in a similar vein with the relationships between um, Kevin and Nora and the Murphys, I mean, how much of that evolved as you were going along and watching the actors interact with each other? Because obviously they start to have some adversarial moments with each other. Did you know that would happen from the very beginning? Um, I, I, you know, it made sense uh, for that to happen, but it took us a long time to get to that get to that point. And I think we knew <clears throat> we had two amazing actors. We had Regina King and, and Carrie Coon, and we had them living right next door to each other. And I think it was just nagging at us, you know, what what is going on between these women? Are they going to be friends? Are they going to be able to help each other? Um, and of course, that's just too easy. Um, yeah. And we slowly came around to the idea that <laughs> Nora was enraged by the fact that somebody was living out a version of her tragic life right next to her. And, and she felt like a, it was possibly a fraudulent version of her tragic life. And, and that's become Nora's uh, big defining characteristic. You know, um, the thing that happened to her is real. And these other milder versions are somehow offensive to her. 
ordinary kinds of loss, what, what Ann Dowd called ordinary grief last night. Because um, Nora really is out to say to Erica, I suffered an extraordinary loss. You suffered an ordinary loss, though you don't know that. And it's, it's, what, it's what made Nora, the guilty remnant never tried to recruit Nora. She's completely and totally impervious to everything that they represent. She just hoses, you know, we love that scene where Liv Tyler is standing outside Nora's place when Kevin and Nora go inside and she just gets the hose. This is like, she just treats the guilty remnant like they're fucking gophers, you know? Like, this is the, we're like, don't you realize this is the big bad of the show? And Nora's like, nah, not really. Just, we got her. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Well, this seems like a good time to show a clip from the episode Lens, since it's a scene with uh, Regina King and Carrie Coon. <laughs> did they depart or did they die? What? Your children. You said you lost them. Did they depart or did they die? They departed. What were the last words they said to you? To the best of your recollection. So I, uh, I spoke to uh, Regina King, I interviewed her during the season, and we were talking about that scene in particular, and um, she said that she and Carrie Coon, I believe, were calling it the 10-pager rager, because it was so, you know, it's a big scene, and there's, there was a lot of dialogue, and I was just curious, um, you and, and Tom wrote that episode together, how much time did you spend on that particular scene? Because I felt um, the language in it is just so precise. Uh, earlier in that scene, she says she uses the word evolve, and I just thought, what a perfect word choice that was. Um, Tom, Tom might have a different recollection of it than I do, but I, I, I kind of, uh, a lot of the scenes require a lot of conversation in the room, and we group write almost every scene of the show in the writer's room with our group of writers, and it functions a lot of the time like a jury room does, um, where at any given time, anyone in the room can be juror number eight. This is from, um, uh, 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 what, what's the- 12 Angry Men. 12 Angry Men, yeah. So, Fonda. And, um, and so the idea that you're trying to convince everyone that you have a great idea, and sometimes you can get everyone on board with you, but most of the time the room will just reject that and you'll move on. And in the case of this episode, we knew that this, this scene that, uh, between Erica and um, Nora was actually the penultimate scene that following this scene, Nora walks out of the scene and then she comes crashing into Kevin's story. And he basically chooses that moment to tell her that he's been seeing Patty. Um, and Justin had this great line suggestion, which is, you know, when I, when I say this to her, I, I, I want to say that I'm, 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 I'm seeing someone. I've been seeing, another, you know. Um, and he, he uses this, this language that in any relationship when you're in love with someone is like, oh my God. And then it's almost a relief for him to say, but it's a dead person. But um, <laughs> so when we, when we actually, when we build these episodes, the first thing we talk about, um, you know, uh, uh, serendipitously for me is where are we ending? What is the last scene of this episode? So we knew that that's where we were gonna end. Um, and uh, with, with Kevin confessing to Nora that he, that he was seeing Patty and was like, how do we get Nora into a place where she's just basically walked out of this incredible boxing match 
and she walks out of the ring and she thinks she's going back to her locker room, but she just walks into another coliseum and <laughs> in, into another ring um, and with someone else who is in the ninth round of their fight. And um, because we want her to be particularly vulnerable. And, I, and then also we knew that I, I had this crazy idea that I wanted to start the episode with Nora throwing a rock through Erica Murphy's window. Um, and I was like, I don't know why, I, why she's doing this. It just feels like something that she would do. And Tom said, I'm okay with it as long as the episode ends with Erica throwing a rock through Nora's window. So we had those pieces. It was like, how do we earn that? How do we earn Erica throwing the rock through Nora's window and vice versa? We have to have some sense of why Nora does it and then we have to have a sense of why Erica um, uh, retaliates um, and then leave the space also for Kevin to have this incredibly important moment for him in the season. And then, you know, we just kind of riffed out the scene and it was not like a particularly brutal day in the writer's room. And we all kind of agreed that, you know, it was going to be Nora coming in in a power position because she's used to being the one who delivers the questions. And at a certain point, Erica was going to completely turn the tables on her. And I just love that shot of Regina after Nora leaves where you realize she's hurt too. Like, mm -hmm. it feels like uh, it's, the, it's the saying, hurt people hurt people. Um, so that idea of like, you just want them to hug um, and heal. But as Tom said very uh, uh, eloquently earlier, that that would be too easy for our show. These characters are moving towards that, but they're not there yet. And so it wasn't until we saw the scene cut for the first time. This scene was cut by Michael Ruscio. It was directed by Craig Zobel, the, the first episode that he directed, but he had been shadowing Mimi for quite some time. And I know I talked to her about a lot of the choices he was gonna make in this scene. We ended up playing it dry. So the music that you hear at the end, Max Richter's score is the first music that you hear in that 10 minute stretch. And when we saw it in the editing room, I just, when Nora cracks there, I started uh, uh, crying and I was like, oh wow, like, I didn't realize that's what the scene was. And I think maybe because we were not that precious about it and it felt like the, we, we will say in the room, then Erica says this, then Nora says this. So it doesn't really even feel like we're writing it. It feels like we're channeling it in a way um, mm -hmm. when you have incredible actors. And I'm not just saying that because two of them are sitting with us right now, but you know, when you have incredible actors, the, the characters really just do start to talk to you. And it feels like our job is to just take dictation. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what, you know. Well, so one of the things I should say is, you know, we, we co-wrote, <clears throat> Damon and I co-wrote the script, but it, it's often the case where a, a really big scene like that, um, I, I kind of left for, for you, and, and I feel like my job was to kind of really set up um, the script. And one of the things we really struggled over was, how does Nora get a hold of this questionnaire? Because we love the idea of Nora asking questions. And that actually took probably more time right. in the room than the actual amazing scene that, that uh, you know, is the, is the questionnaire. And, and it's one of my favorite Justin moments of, uh, of that episode is when Carrie Coon pilfers the questionnaire from Brevity's briefcase. And it's just a beautiful, you know, the leftovers can be very funny. And you're just sort of shocked. It's one of those moments when Nora has revealed <clears throat> something, you know, and I just, every time I watch it, I think, that's a great, you're like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he just like, he just mouths, what are you doing? <laughs> and she just gives him that look like, get out of this. But uh, The other thing that's striking about that scene visually is just how close up it goes, um, you know, and I know Mimi, you've talked about how close ups are really an important part of the show in terms of what you try to do visually. Can you talk about why, why that is and, and why you maybe advised Craig or worked with him well, on that? Well, you know, close-ups, you know, they have to be earned, number one. And these were certainly earned. And um, the, they just go right into your soul. And uh, we use them because we want to get in there. We want to get in there. And uh, I mean, what's great about our show is we can go really wide and very long lens and then bang right into, into a close-up. And it hits you emotionally just where it's supposed to. And it's the power of that lens. And, and the show, this episode is called Lens. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm. you know. Hey. Hey. Oh, hey. <laughs> we are so pretentious. <laughs> Thank you. 
The Vulture Festival podcast is brought to you by Casper, the sleep startup that created one perfect mattress and a simpler shopping experience to go with it. Time Magazine recently named the Casper one of the best inventions of 2015. In fact, it's now the most awarded mattress of the decade. Order online and you can try the Casper at home for 100 nights risk-free. There's always free shipping and always free returns. If you don't absolutely love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. For $50 towards any size Casper mattress, visit casper.com slash vulture50. So I wanted to ask um, Justin and Anne, both of you have had moments where you got a script and you're like, oh, my character's dead. Huh. How about that? Again. <laughs> well, yeah, more than once. Uh, I, I wanted, wondered if you guys could talk about that, that moment of reading, oh, I'm dead and not knowing what your future was going to be on, on the show, I assume. You want to go first? Well, Charlene, uh, you go, honey. <laughs> I have lots of thoughts she about had the, that. She had the first, she died first. She did, right. Um, uh, when I read her death, I was devastated. A, because I love the character so much, and B, um, because playing across from her is so much, we have such a wonderful time on set, um, and to watch her work while she's working is one of the most sublime things ever. Um, Thank you. Uh, so immediately I called Damon and I said, is this really happening? You know, like, and he's like, yes. And he kind of, you know, I, I guess you guys had spoken beforehand. Thank God we hadn't spoken. He kindly, e Damon emailed me, which was yeah. very, I thought, generous and kind. Uh, As I was weeping, you see. <laughs> Passive aggressive yeah. is another way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, and then he, in my death, he kind of did the same thing where he, he said, uh, I'm sending you the script. And it's right, probably a few days before we started shooting it. And he said, don't worry, there's a plan. But in the script, it was, you know, and Kevin is dead. He's dead, dead, like super dead. Like, I mean, like, couldn't put a fine enough point on it. And then I was like, okay, so he's, he's really dead. Um, and then once I got the next script, I mean, he came and kind of gave me, he didn't give me the full beats of that following script where we reunite. Um, but, uh, but he said there is another iteration of, Kevin that's going to happen. So I had that some relief uh, as far as I was concerned. And then also in the second season, knowing that Patty was going to be back haranguing me was a, a joy as well. So, um, but it's, 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 again, one of the, these scripts take such great turns and, they, and they're very informative. And sometimes, you know, there'll be descriptives, you know, that'll say things like, you know, and, you know, by the way, I'm sure you're at this point in the script, you're wondering where blah, blah, blah is. We're getting there or something. You know, there's these kind of, you know, um, touchstones or, 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 or pick points or grab spots where you can, where you feel like you're being held and you're being walked to something that's going to be amazing and safe as well. Mm -hmm. uh, which I guess brings us to the International Assassin episode, um, which for you um, seemed like it was a pretty physically taxing episode for you in that you're fighting people and in bathtubs and falling down wells. Um, did it feel more physically taxing than some of the other things you I done? went to the hospital. Really? Yeah. yeah. He was injured. I got injured like an injured. actor. Um, <laughs> um, no, I did. I got 10 stitches in my lip, and, and I broke my nose in, in one of the fight scenes. Wow. We, every episode you, eight. You came right back to work because the scene where, where Justin's being patted down and, uh, and the guy says, congratulations. Um, uh, you're, no, you're, um, you're in profile I'm because in profile you still had fresh still stitches, had stitches on my lip. And like, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you came back to work, so thank yeah. you for that. Both episode eights and both seasons, I broke my, I shattered my hand and cut. Oh, I broke my, I got stitches in my head and then, and then also an internet. And I broke my knuckles. Yeah. Well, here's to keeping the anyway. tradition alive. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't wait for the finale. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> I assume, was it the fight scene sort of early on? When it's you... the one where the guy puts the gun to my head, and the stunt guy was supposed to move his arm this way, and he didn't, and I was charging him into an elevator, and he just smashed me and then dragged the gun across my face. <laughs> so it was a double wow. like that. We use that That take, actor though. no longer works, no. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on that note, maybe we should look at a clip from International Assassin. Um, are, we in, are we in people's way? Do we need to move? Oh, we don't need to move. We've been doing that for no reason. We oh, we're, we're doing it to watch. <laughs> oh, you want to watch? Okay. We love our okay. show. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
drop me or do you want to push me? Pushing is probably easier. What's wrong? It's hard. Why? Because I feel sorry. That's one of those great examples, I think, on uh, of it being funny and also like horribly tragic at the same time, which you guys do very, very well. Um, obviously, what happens after that is that you end up down in the well with grown-up Patty. Um, what do you guys remember about shooting that scene? Whoa. That was a hard. I mean, it was just. I mean, it, it, it's it's a very hard thing to. Do discuss because it, it was we were say, really saying goodbye to Patty and I, I was saying goodbye to Anne um, and we'd had a couple of these scenes together these sort of uh, you know obviously in the cabin in season one um, it, it's interesting we we had always talked at one point when we shot the cabin scene where she kills herself um, we had talked about or we were sort of you know doing our sort of own script work um, but after we had shot it it was like getting an anvil off your back you're like I'm so glad that's over um, but we were talking about the scene and, we're, and their relationship, and we had both sort of independently come to this idea that their s story was a love story in a way, not you know obviously a, a, a romantic one, but in a way they were somehow the most loving to each other, and that they were trying to educate or help each other. Mm -hmm. um, and that piece of writing in the well was probably one. I remember getting that script and reading through to it, and you know you sort of think that that is the end of the the script. Mm -hmm. And then to like continue that down in the well. I mean, it's all the whole script was so beautifully written and moving. And then to realize that she'd been completely humanized, and for her to tell that story about you know winning all the money on Jeopardy, and then at the end of that having to really sort of carry her the rest of the way um, and sort of put her down in a way, you know, was just. Heartbreaking, you know. So, but it was wonderful because it, we were saying goodbye to Anne, but we were also saying goodbye to Pat. Everything was sort of there and very raw in that scene, or at least yeah. for me, it was. I just, I loved that day of shooting, even though it was uncomfortable and wet and all the rest of it. But it was um, just a, a stunning, again, stunning thing to watch her tell that story over and over again um, during the different takes. Mm -hmm. You know, like in the first um, season. Uh, I remember first reading the pilot and thinking, okay, so this is, I think, sci-fi? What is this? Um, people disappear. Okay. So that's not real. So this is interesting. And then episode two, I was thinking, what is this deep attraction I have to this suddenly? And by the time I got the email from Damon saying, Patty's going to martyr herself, I remember standing up. It was early in the morning. And I stood up in my house and I walked to my husband and I said, could you read that email? And what does it say? Is she, is she dying? Does that mean she's dying? And he said, yeah, it does. And I, I, I literally wept for two days, and I walked up and down the streets of New York, and I thought, okay, get a grip. And then I read this extraordinary episode eight in The Death. And the number of things that reverberated in my life about let go, let go, you've just attached, you've given in, you've taken yourself and let go of all your preconceptions of what you think you love in the work, what you think you believe in the work. And this has taken you to a whole new place, and now it's going to end. And the letting go, and that was what Patty was doing, letting go. 
sorry. And, and he does this to me too. I came in to shoot that final scene, uh, uh, you know, season two, and I come in weeping. I'm trying to find a corner to hide and put a bag <laughs> over my damn head just to get through it, you know, because try saying goodbye to this. It's just brutal, seriously. But more importantly, what is my point? That, yes, I'm sorry I'm taking too long here, but... No, it's wonderful. That she had nothing. She came, you know, she was told she was shit from the day one, and yet she found her resurrection, and she surfaced as a woman who said, I have something to do, and it matters. And so she thought she could die, and it would be done. It's over now. The guilty remnant, we're not hanging around, you idiots. It's over. Accept it, will you? But she wasn't done. Now, this is my interpretation, you see. Um, so you can die physically, but you, to, to let go spiritually and emotionally, you, something else has to happen. And this person, this, well, I love him so much, I don't know what to say, could take her through and release her and, and give her that gift because she could say, yes, I had a chance to end that misery and that abuse, and I couldn't do it. That's all she... And to me, then she could let go. And she needed someone to help her do that. Was that anywhere near a question that you asked? It was, it was a wonderful <laughs> answer, so sure. <laughs> but shooting it, and here, imagine being in a well, water, and, and the hair and makeup are in their boots. And people are doing remarkable, amazing things. We were just sitting, and Justin would say, hello, I think we could heat that up just a little bit. <laughs> Without him, I don't know, I could honestly say. I know, now stop. He, I mean, you want to be in a scene with him. You just do, in case any of you have the opportunity. <laughs> okay, thank you for listening. So there is no chance of Patty ever being in the show again, ever. Damon. That seems like a declarative statement you're making. There's a question mark at the end of it. Here, I, I think that here's what we're, what we're willing to say, which is we would, we would never want to devalue uh, the work that happened in International Assassin in the well. Um, and I think the, the idea of, um, of kind of saying, well, that, that, that wasn't really the end. That was only a partial end for these two characters would in some way, in hindsight, say, oh, that, that feels cheap or that feels like a ripoff. Uh, at, the, at, at, the, at the same time, it would be cruel to ask Anne to appear here today and then, you know, uh, be like, you're never in the show again. And I just, <laughs> you know, so like, I, 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 I can't confirm that you've, you know, that you've seen the last of Anne, but I can confirm that there is a finality to what you've already seen. I think that this idea of like, oh, there's another fucking Terminator robot. Like, you know, I said goodbye to the, ter not that you're the Terminator, <laughs> but, you, but in many ways, the, you know, the metaphor is kind of apt. But, um, but, I, but I do think that, um, you know, the, the beauty of what they did down there. And, and again, in episode eight of, of season one, it only works because Patty's about to take her life. You know, sort of like we created a scenario by which she says to Kevin, I'm not coming out of this cabin alive. You're going to have to kill me. And Kevin tries to say like, well, I've seen a lot of TV shows and here's how this works. I'm not going to kill you because I'm a good guy. And I'm, if you're going to blow up my life and say that I beat you up here, I'm ready to face the consequences. And then Patty says, well, that, that, those, that wasn't the scenario that you walked into, my friend. And I think that the power that you guys brought to your performances was really largely informed by the ine inevitability of the scenario. And the same was true in International Assassin. So it's not like, hey, Patty's great. Well, you know, it's time to bring her back again. Um, uh, also, I just, mean, just to speak to the, 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 the writing of that, I was like completely blown away by the writing of that because you have what's ostensibly, you know, sort of the biggest, baddest villain of our show and you, how do you possibly humanize that person? If I was in a writer's room, and I'm not ever going to be in your writer's room, um, uh, you know, if someone said, "Let's, uh, what about Patty's inner child?" That would be one of those things I would just reject out of you know full stop. Inner child, give me a break, you know. But the way it was so deftly handled, and the introduction of this girl, and the putting it together with Neil, and in the, that hallway, immediately once you have a child saying the thing, you know her literal inner child saying the things, it explains her, it's this weird reverse storytelling that explains her entire point of view, you know, even down to why she joined the guilty remnant. Talking about, you know, the, the unbearable, you know, 
you know, silence being this sort of unbearable rejoinder. Um, she was completely tied up with a, a, a beautiful ribbon on it by the end of that and made to be completely, you know, um, sympathetic, which I just thought was such a magic trick yeah. Um, yeah, and well-earned as well. I, I mean, th th thanks for saying that. And I think that International Assassin was an in intensely difficult episode for us to conceive. And we went mit down many blind alleys. But when we fundamentally arrived at the idea of Kevin, all he wants to do is kill Patty. He just wants to get rid of her so bad. And so what if the episode very quickly changes the math so that it's, that's immensely difficult for him to do? And it's not difficult because he has, you know, physical bridges to cross and mountains to climb, but it just becomes, he, does, he gets to the end of the episode and he no longer wants to do that. How can we, how can we earn that? And then um, we just work backwards from there. And again, you guys just, these ridiculous scenarios that we present um, you bring such groundedness and truth and reality to them. So it's like, you're here, you're, I, I was just listening to you talk about the scene and you're like, uh, and Patty's talking about all that money she won on Jeopardy. And I'm just looking out at you guys going like, and you guys are, you should be like, what the fuck? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. But it, it's not the stupidest thing that you've ever heard because everybody really commits, you know, to the, the emotional reality uh, underlying these, these sort of absurdities. Um, and, uh, uh, that's that, our hats off to you. I mean, we would never have uh, the the guts to write the stuff if we didn't think you could pull it off. Well, I mean, you could have chosen "Let's Make a Deal," <laughs> but but you chose Jeopardy. And how many times have you watched Jeopardy and said, "What is that? That person must be the loneliest creature on the earth." <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was so genius. And, and, and that's Alex Trebek. <laughs> I mean, forget the contestants. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Horrible uh, life he's leading. Um, I want to. I want to fast forward a little bit because um, we're we're starting to sadly run out of time. I could sit here until you know at least until Game of Thrones is on and just keep talking. Oh, yeah. But um, I wanted to talk about the the karaoke scene um, in the in the final episode. Um, I have of Game of Thrones. No, not of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Although that would be pretty I'm, awesome. I'm I'm behind, <laughs> but that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I noticed actually is. Uh, Obviously, Kevin spins the wheel. He, he gets Homeward Bound as his song. But there are other songs on the wheel. Um, I wondered what the conversation was about what other songs should go up there and what would have happened if he hadn't landed on Simon and Garfunkel. Like, if he lands on Living on a Prayer, is he, does he go to New Jersey? Like, what happens? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let Parada tell, tell this tale. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I think it was always going to land on Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Um, but uh, we, we originally when we came around to this idea of karaoke, because you know, we had International Assassin to get out of this other realm, he's gotta perform this act of violence. And the second time around, we just thought, why go there again? What other kind of challenge could he face? And, and the, the absurdity of, of singing your way out of uh, the, the afterlife. Or Tom's the being way. very modest. What happened was in the, in the room, we were like, oh my God, after he did an entire episode of International Assassin just to get out, just to get back to life, now we're going to bus stop in this place for like seven minutes. How can we ever, and we love the idea of him going back and the frustration of looking in the mirror and the music starting again and shouting motherfucker. And we had all that, but then it was like, how can he get out without it being a cheat? And Tom just literally, sometimes you agonize in the room for days and days, just leaning back in his chair was like, he should, he should have to sing karaoke. And everyone <laughs> turned and looked at him, waiting for that moment of, he's kidding. And in that moment, we all fell in love with it. And it was just like, really? And Tom was like, yeah, he should, just, he should just walk down to the hotel bar and someone should tell him that he has to sing. And I was like, in, in that instant that he pitched it, I fell in love with it. But then also I was like, oh, it's gonna, get it's gonna be impossible to, com to, co to convince the row to do this. You are, you are so game about everything that we've ever asked you on the show. And I, I just knew in that instance, I emailed you, can you sing, question mark? And you emailed back, why, <laughs> question mark. And, and that, right then I knew it was the right idea, sorry. But you know, Tom, Tom, Tom is selling himself short. And when oh, no. you see the clip, but I mean, it I, was, I that's find, how we knew it was the right idea. I find karaoke terrifying. I, it's okay. the most terrifying thing on so the that, planet. I mean, I, I did and Kevin think. even says, when the guy says, you're in karaoke, he goes, because he says, I'm not going to do it. He says, why? He goes, because it's fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, so. Okay, you know, meanwhile, that to me. yeah. meanwhile, I got an email from him. I'm a little out of my comfort zone. Um, I'm, I've got to sing and I've got to karaoke. I really don't know. I'm kind of 
kind of, I, I think we need, may need to have a conversation. So I remember reading the scene, I said, darling one, typing, this is going to be the easiest scene you will ever shoot. Why? Because character and actor are lining up perfectly. <laughs> the last thing Kevin wants to do is sing in the fucking karaoke, and the last thing you want to do is to sing the damn song. I just thought, what could be better than this scene? And of course, he was fabulous. So there you go. And he did it without a drink. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to have a cocktail delivered the whole time. They were, the hotel wouldn't Oh, no. that's hilarious. And the, the, uh, the initial song was, we were going to do Like a Prayer uh, by Madonna. And, um, and it was like, Madonna doesn't clear Like a Prayer. Uh, and, and we were like, but, you know, they did it on happy endings. You know, so she does clear it. And they're like, well, she's not clearing it for you. And so we we're like, fuck Madonna. <laughs> you know, moving on. And 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 I was down Get in me Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, I was I was down in Texas, sitting in Mimi's office, and we were just playing different pieces of music, and we kind of narrowed it down to the Great Pretender, which was a very kind of like, you know, uh, you know, classic kind of like. Um, you know, early old school kind of creepy 50s we had used, you know, um, in, in season one uh, that kind of creates that sort of like weird, dreamy, echoey reverb, like soulful, sad. And also it seemed like it was commenting on Kevin, you know, the great pretender. But then every time we played the Simon and Garfunkel, our resistance to it was that it was too on the nose. Yeah. Like it was too unapologetically, you know, sentimental. Like, and it was also too obvious for a show that kind of, we always like to try to, try to use music outside the box or use the music that you would expect in a different context. This sort of felt like we were just kind of going for the pure sentimentality of it. But every time we played it and we thought about Justin, you know, just hating it, just then it suddenly became this other thing. And, uh, and we, we, we settled on the Simon and Garfunkel um, and uh, thank God we did. Mm. So should we watch the clip and torture Justin oh, right now? Yeah. I'll just sing it. To Justin should just sing, sing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, honey. <laughs> oh, God. Second humiliation. <laughs> and each town looks the same to me. And the factories And every stranger's face I see Reminds me that I long to be Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound Home where my thoughts escaping Home where my music's playing Home where my love lies waiting Silently for me Tonight I'll sing my songs again, I'll play the game and pretend. Though mm -hmm. my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity, like emptiness in harmony, I need someone to comfort me. Homeward bound, I wish I was. Homeward bound. Home where my thoughts escaping. Home where my music's playing. Home where my love lies waiting silently for me. Silently for me. Got a record deal right after that. <laughs> um, I know we're running out of time, but I, I do want to talk a little bit about, um, well, the end of the season, it, even though there's obviously a lot of turmoil going on in Miracle, it, it kind of ends on a happy note as well. And I'm assuming that you guys were kind of thinking we, this might be the last episode, it might not, and you maybe wanted to give it a sense of, you know, finality if that needed to be the case. Is that true? I think it was less that than um, I, I think that Tom blessed us by writing a novel that was not a continuing series. And one of the things that we started talking about very early on was, you know, what's the first season of the show going to be? And I felt so uh, 
satisfied finishing the book that I was sort of like, I'm completely and totally okay with leaving these characters here. But at the same time, we're really energized by the fact that this has the potential to be a television series. So let's see where we get. And then we attack the second season with the same idea, which is like, let's just, what if Tom was writing another novel? Um, and so that it would have an ending where it kind of felt like I might want to spend more time with these characters. It feels like maybe they're not entirely at the end of their journey, but at the same time, I'm okay with leaving them here. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, we always designed the second season with that sense of beginning, middle, and end and completedness, um, that, you know, independent of is there going to be a third season of the show or not, because we wanted to have the same conversation as writers that we did at the end of the first year, which is like, should we do another one? And and not just it, are we inclined to do it, but what would the story of it be? Um, and if we can't come up with something that is worthy, then we're not going to do it at all. Um, and uh, and HBO was kind enough to allow us to do one more year, but it definitely felt like we were by the end of the second season. Um, as the critical community and uh, even the uh, audience who was sort of like, we're not sure about season one, but we really love season two. Even they were saying, uh, uh, we're cool with it ending here. And so that seemed to suggest to us that we were much closer to the ending of the series than we were to the beginning. And in terms of, again, creating that same energy that I talked about earlier with Justin and and when you tell uh, someone your character is about to die, um, it just... Uh, it, it affects your, your work with an incredible level of intensity and poignancy um, in the same way that any of us who ever lost loved ones who, who know that the, the end is near, what a, what a, what a beautiful way um, uh, for you to spend the end of their life with them as opposed to it being shocking and sudden. So now we're basically infusing an entire season of television with that idea. We've taken uh, matters into our own hands. We're in control of our own destiny. The ratings are completely and totally irrelevant. So that idea is like, we don't, we, we, we want all of you to watch it, but everyone else can go fuck themselves. And, you know, um, and, um, uh, so that idea of sort of saying we're going to do one more and we, we do have more story to tell, but it's never it's never been the cliffhanger show where it's it's ever like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? Um, uh, well, what are these people going to feel next? And, and are these people going to feel better? Are they going to be better? Um, are, are they going to feel better than they did when we first found them? Because um, uh, season one was really about shock and uh, just uh, the immediate sort of, the, the, the characters almost couldn't move. Season two, they started moving, started moving towards feeling better, uh, uh, taking action. And season three is, uh, is, is, is gonna be more of the same because there's a lot of movement. Um, but if, if we feel like we can leave the characters better off or more realized or more evolved than they were when the, when the show began, then, then we can continue moving them forwards and we feel we, we've got about eight more episodes of that before we're done. Yeah. And, you know, each of the seasons had a very kind of simple idea, even though the show is very complicated. You know, in the first season, you know, things are lost at the beginning. And, you know, we end with, with this um, moment of somebody finding something, you know. And season two begins with a woman separated from her tribe. You know, there's this earthquake and they're all, they're all lost. And, and we end, you know, with this moment of, you know, restoration where... You know, Kevin comes home and his whole extended tribe family is there, you know. And so, so we, you know, we do have these seasonal arcs and, and it's not like there are happy endings in The Leftovers, but there are moments of restoration, really. Mm -hmm. right. That's kind of uh, what I know. It was a pattern. I don't think we planned it, but it's a, a pattern that is there. Mm -hmm. So what can you say about season three? Um, are we going to see, for example, more new characters in the sense, same way that we saw the Murphys kind of joining joining the cast or what can you tell us about it um not really i mean i think that uh particularly because we're we're coming in for the landing now uh we really want to service the characters that we've already got um and uh i don't think that the murphys were a gimmick by any stretch of the imagination it was really important to tell their story and 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 more importantly interweave their story with the with the garveys but now as we leave season two there's you know there's four more characters that we cared care about um, than were when we entered season two. And so the idea of adding even more characters to the mix, especially when the show is ending, mm -hmm. I feel what happened to the deficit of the characters that we're already invested in. So, um, you know, uh, I think that uh, pretty much all the, uh, all the characters who are already in play uh, with, a, with a couple of exceptions, I wouldn't say we're in, uh, you have to have some new characters, but definitely none on the scale that the Murphys were introduced mm -hmm. uh, in the second season. Okay, and you guys are already in the midst of production, correct? 
yeah, we're uh, we're we've been shooting in Texas for uh, for the better part of the month, and uh, Mimi is uh, is about to go somewhere else that we're not allowed to talk about. <laughs> um, but uh, we wrap in Texas uh, at the end of uh, this week, and um, and then we'll be uh, going to that other place that we're not allowed to <laughs> talk about. Yeah, the other place. A I place believe it's is- a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, but we don't know yet air date, right? Or is it, or is it going to be fall? Like I don't know. What have you heard? I've, I've heard uh, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know. We, okay. we on it, and I'm not being coy. We honestly, we, we do, we do not know. We're, uh, we're, we, our, our job is to make the show, and uh, and it'll be on when it's on, and we're we're eager for you guys to see it. Um, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Right. No, I just mentioned that so I could tell people when to watch it. But, oh, good. but they'll find out yes. eventually. Um, I think we actually have run out of time. <laughs> So I had hoped to give you guys a, a chance for Q&A, but I think we actually ran out of time because you guys were so great and had so much wonderful stuff to tell everybody. So thanks to all of you so, so much for being on the panel. And thanks to the audience as well. The Vulture Festival podcast is brought to you by Casper, the sleep startup that created one perfect mattress and a simpler shopping experience to go with it. Casper's in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the mattress. It's got just the right sink, just the right bounce, and it keeps you cool all night. Order online and try it for 100 nights risk-free. For $50 towards any size Casper mattress, visit casper.com slash vulture50. 